0: They have never openly spoken about sex.
1: The things that are hardest for couples to talk about are sex and money. And there's one of my favourite pieces of research found that there were 237 reasons for why people said they had sex. We are expected to never talk about this, to never ask any questions, to never explore it apart from in the kind of quite tight confines of what's allowed. We're expected. To be experts. Women we see a lot are reporting a lack of desire. This is something that you know I see people kind of comment therapy so much. We expect from one person what a village used to give us, and to be our lovers, our confident, the most close person to us, a co-parent, a housemate, that we we put everything on them. And actually Why can't we get different things from different relationships with other people? Just in terms of our friends, Mm. our family, this model of the best relationships is they're always together, always close.
0: Because I read a stat that millennials are struggling with sex and having no sex life compared to any other homo sapiens that ever existed on the planet. One of the biggest side effects I see. Hey everyone and welcome back to another episode of A Millennial Mind. This is an incredibly uncomfortable and difficult conversation for me to have. It is a taboo, and it is something that we do not speak about, but something that is so needed to save our relationships. And I've brought in an expert today who is going to help you see so many different things in different lights, and we are talking about sex. It impacts our relationship, it impacts our mood, and it impacts our mental health. So before we start this conversation, I have a really tiny favor for you to do, and that's to press the like and subscribe button this podcast is completely free and it's just the one tiny thing that helps me keep making these episodes better for you every single week. So without further ado, let's deep dive into this uncomfortable conversation together. This is a very uncomfortable conversation for me, but Kate, welcome to Millennial Mind. Thank you. I don't, I don't know how I feel about this. You asked me to come in. I asked you to come onto my podcast and I have never been more nervous for someone to come on mm. because I have never openly spoken about sex. I think it's a taboo to even mention the word, let alone to deep dive into the topics. But I feel like it's really important because we're seeing such a rise in divorces, in breakups. And Overall, relationships are struggling right now. And one thing you said to me is we often separate those issues.
1: Mm, yeah, we definitely do. And I think so often sex is the bit that we don't want to talk about. We think that the the things that are hardest for couples to talk about are sex and money, really. Mm. And when you said to me, I'm so nervous about this conversation, I think that's how most people feel coming into psychosexual therapy. They don't skip in really excited to be there. In in the perfect world, no one really would be coming to psychosexual therapy. And I think, in a way, so much of the work that I do is trying to do myself out of a job, yeah. which is about <laughs> trying to improve our sexual culture and sexual well-being so that people don't end up at the point that they're struggling so much they have to come and see someone like me. But yeah, it definitely, I think, reflects the general feeling we have around it as a topic.
0: And why are people struggling so much? Because I read a stat that millennials are struggling with sex and having no sex life compared to any other homo sapiens that ever existed on the planet. Mm. So what's so different about millennials and why are we struggling so much?
1: Well, there's so many theories and people are calling it the sex recession. There have been some really big, kind of very widely read articles which have labelled it that. And there are some really big theories. One, you know, the one that everyone points to is the increased role of media in our lives, social media, our phones. They take our attention. We're kind of all glued to them. It's our primary way of connecting and often when we're together physically, they are a barrier between mm. us. And it's something that couples talk to me about all the time in therapy. But you can just see, you see it everywhere. And then we've got also things like it's harder for people to move out of home. Life is a lot more expensive. So people are living with parents for longer, you know, living in shared accommodation for longer. So there is an actual kind of having your own space factor that also goes into it. But stress levels, anxiety levels are on all time high. And I think that also we don't have good enough sex education. And with the shift of sex becoming something more visible, we're also understanding that this is something that we can do something about and change. Where I think previously people accepted that that was just how it was, or they didn't have the resources or the ability to even have a conversation about how to do something differently.
0: So how do we do something differently?
1: (laughs) Well, it's so layered. It's so... The conversation itself, you know, podcasts like this I think are brilliant because it's kind of sneaking it in amongst other conversations. It's a, it's a being allowed. Yeah. So a lot of what we talk about in therapy is permission giving and normalising. And sex being something which is presented alongside other areas of health, well-being, is a really important part of it because it's always been that kind of dirty, kind of dark corner bit that nobody wants to talk about. And we see that reflected... In things like health, people really taking a long time to go and see doctors or medical professionals about something to do with their genitals or something to do with sex or anything to do with that part of their body because they feel embarrassed and ashamed about it. And that can have a massive knock-on effect on on health as well and mental health.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think the the first step, though, is recognizing that something is wrong Mm -hmm. and being okay to know your body and understand that it's okay to seek help. So as a psychosexual therapist, what are some of the reasons that people are hesitant to approach you? So when you when you obviously work with people, do they tell you, look, I didn't want to come to you for so long because of?
1: Yeah. And I think shame is pretty much always mm. the number one answer or embarrassment. Yeah. And a lot of people will say to me, I've been looking at your website for like a year or I've I've thought about doing this for a long time or I've really hesitated. and. We all feel shame, shame is such a commonly associated feeling with sex. Yeah. And by that, it's the kind of, you know, feeling bad and negative for how someone else might see me. We have a lot of guilt, shame, negativity associated with it as a topic. And a lot of that is in how lots of us learnt about it. We don't kind of consider that we can openly ask questions or that we can explore it. It's just this, this thing that we, everyone's doing, but nobody's talking about doing and we feel like we shouldn't be doing. But the reality is it's how most of us at least got here. Absolutely. I really want to touch on shame because it's something that I feel with
0: a lot of things, even this podcast. The first thing I recognized, and just like people who are looking at your website, I've been watching your podcast for a while on other people's channels and listening to your one and thinking, I need to get her on. But how am I going to approach this conversation? What will people say? What will my parents say? What will the comment section say? It's very taboo Mm. to talk around sex in Indian culture. I've never ever spoken about it and even knowing that people I know in my community are going to be watching this, I had to really think about how I say things, how I word them because there is a lot of shame associated with it Mm. and when we think back to it actually, we have to think about, we're not meant to be talking about sex at all, just how for a lot of people when they're younger, they're not allowed to date and then the second they turn to like 25, it's like, where's your husband, Mm. are you going to get married? But a lot of people are like, wait, hold on. I wasn't allowed to date and now I'm going to be married. Now, I had a different experience. I was always allowed to date. But I've never openly spoke about sex. And then I'm sure the second I get married, it's going to be like, when are you having kids? And that experience is so true for so many people. So sex is okay to procreate. And that should be the only time it's spoken about. Mm. And we need to change that.
1: Yeah. And the reasons that people have sex, you know, majoritively... It's not because they're trying to procreate. And there's one of my favorite pieces of research found that there were 237 reasons for why people said they had sex. And I think that, you know, that's one part of sex. And sex is such a huge, wide-reaching topic and experience for people, the way that people do it, the way that people feel about it, the meaning it has for them. But we've focused for so long on one bit. And also, that part of sex excludes people that, can't have that type of sex, don't want yeah. to have that type of sex, aren't interested in that mm. type of sex. And I think that one of the things I always say is we are expected to never talk about this, to never ask any questions, to never explore it, apart from in the kind of quite t- tight confines of what's allowed. And then the minute that we are allowed to, whether that's um, you know the age of consent or it's getting married or whatever mm. that, that is for us, we're expected to be experts. And we expect Absolutely. our partners to be experts. And in no other area of our lives would we do that? Would we be like that? And that's really confusing for people because we go in to early relationships and sexual experiences with high levels of anxiety, not knowing kind of what to do, what to say, how to communicate. And that's one of the things that causes so many problems across the board, however long we've been in a relationship for. Or if we aren't in a relationship and we're single and we want to be able to say to partners, look, this is not what works for me this is what works for me I don't like that we don't know how to say it and that's really really tricky for people because then we're we're so in our heads rather than being in our bodies and experiencing it as as something enjoyable so how do we unlearn that if somebody's watching or listening to this podcast right now and thinking
0: I agree with you I've never spoken about it I don't know how to approach it I don't know what's right I'm really struggling with the stigma around it Mm -hmm. what do I do
1: One of the things I think that's really important is kind of what I call sex education across the lifetime. I think so many of us feel we don't get the sex education that we wanted or we needed. Right. And then we feel we can't do anything about that. And such a big part of my work is with the podcast and the book is about putting the conversation somewhere that people can go to them. So Mm. this isn't something that's being thrust on everyone. It's there for the people that want to go there and listening to different voices, kind of widening your perspective, feeling more informed. So again, a huge part of my work is about helping people to make informed choices. So giving the information in a way that you can then take and act on in a way that suits you. So something is getting yourself kind of equipped. So listening to experts, there are some amazing books by doctors and therapists now, people who really know what they're talking about, and kind of equipping yourself with the knowledge. And then you can decide to take it further in whatever way you want to. But I think so many of us feel kind of stunted by not having known how to get the information through sex education or through conversations. And that's something you can do yourself, importantly, in a non-sexual way. Mm -hmm. So listening to a podcast, reading a book, watching a TED talk, you don't have to do anything about that in the moment. There's no pressure for you to act on it or do anything. It's just for you. And I think you're so right around that education piece because...
0: I probably learned about it at school and then never really ever explored the topic, Mm. right? And it was only recently when I listened to a podcast that I thought, wow, I resonate with so much of what that person is saying. You know, I've never consciously thought about it. It's just been very unconscious. Mm. And when you're hearing somebody explain the differences that women feel and the differences that men feel and the different needs that women want and the different needs that men want, it allows you to make that informed decision. It allows you to feel less alone. It allows you to feel in that moment like, wow, I'm not the only one going through this. And I interviewed Hector on my podcast. And he was the first person that came on this podcast and said, I really struggled with sex growing up because I had no idea what to do. I had no idea how to do it. I was so anxious about it. And I was like, I never had those thoughts. I never, I just, I never even thought about it because it wasn't something that was prominent in my mind does that make sense and then it made me realize like wow it's so interesting that we don't even get told we should think about that does that make sense it was very Mm -hmm. weird but what are some of the differences that we see and you see I guess with your clients with the needs and the expectations that women want and men want and why is that so pivotal in understanding how important it is in a relationship
1: Yeah, and one thing I just wanted to go to there is you said that feeling on your own thing. I think if we change this conversation and we change the kind of way that we talked about this, one of the biggest side effects I see of any difficulty with sex is people think they're the only ones. Yeah. And so changing it and feeling that you're not the only one in itself undoes some of the shame. You feel so relieved. You're like, oh, thank God. Yeah. yeah, Not just me. Um, I think what we see reported, so one of the things that is really common in my practice is men and particularly younger men struggling with something we call performance anxiety so Mm -hmm. this real focus on how I'm doing what I'm doing how I need to do it what's my partner thinking so much so that that high level of anxiety can can interrupt normal sexual functioning and it's really really problematic for people because then they get stuck in a cycle of going into their next sexual experience highly anxious that's more likely to interrupt normal sexual functioning because we're in a different headspace we're in that kind of threat response stress response not an arousal response and so that's a really common experience and I've seen definitely younger men reporting that that's a really big problem for them and they don't know how to get out of it because they're so focused on the thing that they can't do and they feel like they're failing and again this is a big big thing that we see when it comes to sex people feeling like they're failing they're not doing enough a good enough job and we know that Sex is a subjective experience, not an objective one. It can't be measured by certain criteria, but we're so obsessed with trying to do so still, even now. Interesting. And women we see a lot are reporting a lack of desire. So it's the motivation for sex. But a huge part of that is the difference or how desire changes from something that feels quite spontaneous at the start of relationships to something which is more responsive. And again, how we've just been taught about desire is it's this thing that kind of hits us like a lightning bolt and we act on it like in the movies, you know, everyone kind of gets through the door, throws themselves against the wall and that once we don't have that anymore, we have a problem. Whereas in fact, we know that it is something that can be triggered, that we start something and then the desire to continue emerges and that's something that is as valuable and we can act on in relationships but we don't like that version so much, it's not the kind of Hollywood, you know, exciting version that we we got used to at the start of our relationships and it changes but again we feel that we're the problem when there's a change and we're not told that it should change
0: so powerful and
1: what's the I guess tip
0: for people if they're struggling with that so when men come to you and they say I have huge performance anxiety what can we tell them to do
1: it's about getting out of your head and getting into your body because you're always going to prioritize anxiety, you're always going to prioritise the worry. You're always going to prioritise the thing that you think is going to go wrong because anxiety has a survival function. Yeah. And so what we have to do is we have to take away the goal, orientatedness of sex. We have to take away the point of pressure and get into focusing on what's happening in your body. And there's an irony, which is that focusing, for example, whether it's on orgasm, the irony is you're probably least likely to achieve it when you're focusing on it so much, whereas if you take it away as a goal and enjoy the experience of pleasure, you're more likely to get there. How interesting. So what what is something that someone can do right now to get out of their
0: head and get into their body?
1: Is to give yourself permission to mm-hmm. focus on pleasure and not performance. To focus on the sensations that are happening in your body, kind of try and reorientate yourself with touch if you notice that you're getting distracted and your mind is wandering, to kind of bring yourself back in. Also to communicate to your partner if, mm. if that you're nervous. You're like, do you know what, this is not working for me at the moment or I'm really struggling at the moment. What can we do differently? Or I don't want you to start panicking or worrying or assuming that this is something about you because this is something that's going on for me and I just need us to do things a little bit differently.
0: Whilst we're changing the conversation around toxic masculinity, I know that if the if there's some men watching this, some of them will be saying, What's well, easy for you to say, have a conversation with your partner. It makes me feel emasculated. It makes me feel very awful that I can't fulfill their needs. And by saying that, it makes me feel like I'm already telling them I'm not doing well. Does that make sense? Mm. A lot of the time, we don't have a conversation around it because it's just like, well, glaze past it. And we won't confront it and say, actually, this isn't very great because it's uncomfortable. Like you just said, it's very much around the performance and men associate that performance as a strength.
1: I think a big part of this is the fact that we think that we only talk about sex when there's a problem. Yes. And we don't have Mm -hmm. the everydayness, the kind of messiness, the awkwardness, the how's it going, the check-ins. We don't have Those conversations. And so the only conversations we have are, oh my God, it's amazing, or oh my God, it's going so wrong. And there's something in that that we think having to talk about it in itself is a problem. And so then we avoid the conversations. And so the conversation in itself becomes problematic. Whereas if we took that away, and actually, I would argue that knowing how to communicate about sex is the most important thing anyone can do for their sex lives. And we celebrated that and we said, isn't it great that we can talk about this? You know, it's a bit awkward. We might kind of feel a bit funny around each other. We can laugh. Mm. It doesn't all have to be serious. But we don't, we don't feel equipped to have to do that. And we just think by nature of bringing it up that we're admitting something wrong with us. And actually, I would say it's so, you know, it's a much bigger, wider problem. So powerful. And I think, I guess my next question is, should you be
0: compatible in your sex life like is sex compatibility a thing
1: it's the thing everyone always wants to know about (laughs) yeah (laughs) how do I find out before we date for two years that we're not compatible um I would argue and I think other experts would argue that to be perfectly sexually aligned with your partner is much more unlikely than being completely perfectly sexually aligned and the best analogy I can give this is We don't expect to go to a restaurant for us both to perhaps even choose the same cuisine in the first place, the same restaurant, to sit down, both choose exactly the same thing off the menu, eat it in the same way, to really enjoy it, and then to do the same thing like the following week. We would probably think that was stranger than... Very weird. Yes. Than us um, being, kind of choosing something different. And we accept... That huge level of variability of what we like, what we don't like, what we're curious about, what we desire, what is an absolute no, what we would never go there. We accept that, for example, with lots of other things in life, like food. But when it comes to sex, we don't. And we have this idea that in order for sex to work, we need to be perfectly sexually aligned in every way, shape and form. And actually, it's much better for us to negotiate that as couples and to work it out. And compatibility is also quite largely about trying, is about the intentionality of it, is about curiosity, is about working. Okay, well, I'm not interested in that, but what about this? Or how do you feel about that? Or this isn't working for us, how do we change it? And there's so much kind of negotiation Mm. that goes on within that. And I think that we think that compatibility is just this kind of, you know, this perfectly matched. And like we said earlier, sex is so subjective. It's completely subjective often in couples. So it might be really important for one partner, but less important for the other. And what then becomes difficult or problematic and is a reason that lots of couples present for therapy is how do we manage the difference, that mismatch in desire? And how do we communicate that? Mm. Because there's going
0: to be people that are watching this thinking, am I compatible with my partner? Is Is it
1: really that important?
0: Because is, is sex important. really
1: important in a relationship. Well, it's as important as it is to you. Yeah. And that's the that's where that's where often couples kind of get stuck. Because one partner might say, Look, this is how I feel loved, this is how I feel close to you. This is what makes us more than friends, more than housemates. Yes. That I need this to feel validated, that it's a really important thing for me, and that's the person that I am. It always has been. The other person might say, Do you know what I don't need that to feel close to you? I, I get that from everything else that we do together as a couple. I just know that we love each other because we're here every day doing our couple thing. That's, yeah. It's, you know, I'd rather sleep. And quite often you have those. And it's the meaning then that sex plays for both of those people that becomes the more important bit actually than the act itself because what does it mean to not have it? Mm. What does it mean about us? What does it mean about me? What does it mean about us as a couple? if we're a couple that aren't having sex. And so much of that is in the shoulds. So should is a banned word in my therapy room. Really? Yes. Why because, is should a banned word? Because so many people say it because we should. And I said, but where, where does the should come from? Who said should? And there's never an answer. It's always um, society, society, just because. Movies. Yeah. If someone came in and told you,
0: I'm happy with not having sex at all in my relationship, is that okay?
1: If it's okay for them, yes. But what becomes problematic is if they're in a relationship with someone who it isn't okay for.
0: And that's why it's so important to have that compatibility. What makes the most compatible couples?
1: One of the things that we see about couples that kind of report having successful sex lives is that they work at it. And again, it's the unsexy answer that people don't really want to hear because we... We seem to have this, this idea that sex and relationships just happen, that sex and intimacy just happen. And actually, we do need to put in some effort. We do need to nurture it. Esther Perel talks about it as nurturing the erotic. Mm. And it's that we have to sometimes do things that we might think are not sexy, like putting time aside to be together, like putting our phones down. Yeah. So much happens when we miss each other. You know, how many couples sit in bed together both on their phones And they miss the reaching out, the eye contact, the kind of potential for leaning into something and it happening. And that that disconnect is problematic for sex a lot because those little invitations to each other are missed. We don't see them. We don't get the eye contact. We don't get the touch because we're so preoccupied. We're so distracted.
0: And how do we become less distracted? Because as much as I would love to say, okay, I'm going to put my phone away for half an hour and let's encourage everyone half an hour before bed to do that. A lot of people will say, you know, we're distracted by our kids. We're distracted by our friends. We're distracted by our work. We're distracted by what's going on in the world. So what's a small thing that
1: you advise people to do if they're struggling right now with so much distraction? Mm. And I think that's so many people's reality. You know, I'm a parent myself. I get that. I think that it's about that making time and so many of us try and find time but we do have to make it and even if it is 15 minutes once the kids have gone to bed half an hour and it's once a week or it's once every two weeks just or it's setting something like a rule so some people kind of have a rule like no phones at the table during meal times yes and that's a moment of connection or a moment of time and these things are what we talk about as sexual currency so sexual currency is everything you'd only do with a partner But there isn't sex. So they're all things that contribute to that sexual connection between you. And you're trying to keep that higher Mm. and trying to keep that elevated. And that doesn't happen without effort. But the thing is, we're always comparing it to how it was at the start when it did happen without effort. But then everything else in your relationship has also changed. Effort.
0: Effort is a funny word because in relationships, at the start, you don't have to make any effort. Mm. It just comes. The spark is there. You're excited. You want to do things together. You're thoughtful. You and often you're a lot more physical and there's a lot more connection and you're a lot more um, complementary. And so at the start, everything feels wonderful. And I think the problem in the modern dating world is we are shown in movies that your love grows stronger because your love grows stronger. You often continue to do those things without thinking about it. It's just second nature. My partner loves me and he doesn't even have to think about that stuff. And we're constantly fed this narrative that actually if you love someone, you should, you would do these things automatically. In fact, I've, I think it's the opposite. The, you make a lot of effort in the beginning, but then you have to consciously work at it. And that idea of consciously working at a relationship has come to light a lot more now when people are saying that, you know, we work hard at our relationship every day, mm. but it's still uncomfortable to say to your partner, we have to work at this.
1: Why is that? What is the modern dating world doing? We work at everything, don't we? It's, I think it's it's kind of mad that we think that we shouldn't work at it. And I think... Some, you know, a lot of experts will talk about how the fact that, you know, our relationships are some of the hardest work we'll ever do Mm. because we, there's, there's you, there's me and we, and we have to really negotiate what someone else wants alongside balancing that with our own needs. But I think that that fantasy model is that the best relationships just work. Yes. But it's the introduction of everything else, you know, work, kids, different schedules, travel, money running a house together, you know, no one thinks that putting out the bins is sexy and fun, but we do all of those things. And Mm. I think that the way that we show our partners that we're interested, that we're attracted to them, it changes. And we see that, you know, research has shown there's different chemical profiles between lust, attraction and attachment. And how we get to know each other kind of depends on how much we invest at the start. So it's really important. And that's why we see that often people at the start of relationships, their friends say, we haven't seen you. Where have you been? You know, that whole, we kind of throw ourselves in so hard. Mm-hmm. And then we kind of come out the other side and we start to integrate all the other things back into our lives. But so much of that is about building that strong connection with someone is about that, that you know, we talk about it as the honeymoon period, don't we? Yeah. But just because it's changed doesn't mean that it's worse. It's just less less obvious I think but we have we exchange that novelty that excitement that curiosity that getting to know each other for something more routine or more stable or more predictable and we see that those things kind of balance each other out a bit and therefore we have to inject the novelty the fun the curiosity a bit more because we can't because by nature of us knowing that person more better deeper then there are going to be less things that perhaps surprise us or excite us
0: i actually listened to in another podcast that somebody said women love spontaneity and men love routine do you think that's true
1: i have no idea if i think that's (laughs) true um i think that spontaneous sex is kind of hailed as the, the you know the the best type of sex i think that we see that reported by people all the time and often it's because it's the, the biggest the challenge against routine or familiarity and routines are something that are really easy to settle into when it comes to sex and I think you'll yeah. desire the heat and the excitement that happened at the start and I think that's where recognizing these changes that happen is really important and that we can do something about that importantly mm. you know we can change one thing every time we have sex we don't always have to do the same thing but that gets paired with the lack of communication. And so how do we explore that if we're in a relationship as a couple if we can't talk about it because we can't say to each other, okay, why don't we try something different today? How interesting. It is just
0: a small thing, isn't it? Right, just one small sentence that could change so much.
1: How do we have that conversation? I often say to people, if you're too nervous to have it, then use something like a podcast to... Mm use it as a a springboard or a diving board to have the conversation. Just share it with your partner and say, listen to this today, what do you think? Or I heard this today, share it. Whether it is, you know, a podcast, a TED talk, an article, a TV, you know, a scene in a film or use something to platform it because so often we don't start the conversations for fear Mm. of what's my partner going to think if that comes from me. Yes. And so often I recommend to people I'm working with, There are lots of brands that have things like cards with a hundred questions about sex and relationships on them. If you can't start the conversation yourselves, use something like that as a prompt. Yeah. And often people have been in relationships for years and never talked about sex, had kids and never talked about sex. And so it isn't just something that, you know, people in quite young relationships are struggling with. It's across the board. And I think that it's not going to start itself if it hasn't started by now. Mm -hmm. But that takes you saying to your partner, how do we talk about this? Or how do you feel about talking about this? Or can we talk about this? And also I say do it at a time when you're not, you know, about to have sex, having just had sex, having sex or just afterwards. Talk about it in neutral territory. Yeah. Because it can feel so much more intense if it's in a sexual environment.
0: I love that. It's actually such a great tip and also a very good plug so everyone share this with your partner. But you touched upon shame at the start of this podcast and I actually wanted to bring it back again because in your book you talk around a shame cycle Mm. and I do think shame is such a big part of this debate. You know, the reason why I think so many people don't address it, the reason why so many people don't communicate about it well is because they associate a lot of shame to sex. So talk to me about the shame cycle.
1: So what... This is something that you know I see people kind of talking about therapy so much is if we perceive that we are failing at sex, not good at sex, not good enough. So also thinking that the not good enough feeling is quite common for a lot of people in lots of areas of their lives. We go into it kind of not feeling confident, we might be starting to worry, be preoccupied by our thoughts, be quite anxious we might then struggle physically. Hmm. So we know that feelings of shame, anxiety, stress can interrupt arousal, which is the body's process of preparing for sex. So things for women like increased lubrication, increased blood flow to the genitals, to the pelvic area, um, erections for men, getting people to start increased heart rate, increased blood flow, and all of those things that play a critical part in how our body works. Now, if those are interrupted, we aren't going to be able to perform. And you'll notice the words I'm using are not words that I would use, but these are the things that people are saying. In the way that we want to, and therefore that contributes further to us feeling like we're failing. We feel bad about it. Often we go internal rather than external. We don't say to our partners, I'm really struggling. Like, can we change something or can we stop or can we pause? We um, start to worry about what's going on for them. We self-criticize. And we feel really bad about it. And what we then do, because we don't have this resolution, which might be, okay, I need to do something about this or I need to talk to my partner about this or where can I get help for this or how can I equip myself with knowing what's going on here? Often we don't understand stuff ourselves because we we keep so much of it inside. We then go into our next sexual experience carrying all of that, you know, like a backpack with us. Mm. And it's likely to reinforce what's going on. Our partner might then say, like, what's going on? Often partners jump to things like, are you not attracted to me anymore? That tends to be a first place that people go to. Or, you know, do you not love me anymore? Like, what's happening? And then often partners will have their own internal dialogue because we're working on assumption, not clarification because a lot of couples aren't able to talk about this. And it's really easy For that to kind of go around. And also when we're struggling with sex, we have what we call a bi-directional relationship with our mental health, which is that it calls into question things that we might think about ourselves or how we think we're doing or how we think we are as a man, a woman, a husband, a wife, a partner. And that can then start to knock our confidence, our self-esteem, how we feel about ourselves, our self-image, our body confidence. Yeah. And so that's why we talk about it as a cycle, because it's not just the act of sex, it's what it means. And then what it means for us to be failing is how a lot of people report it, at sex.
0: That's so powerful. And I think it's, it's fascinating when we're talking about that because it obviously seems obvious, doesn't it? If you are struggling with your body image, you're not going to feel comfortable in the bedroom. And if you don't think you're comfortable in the bedroom, then you're going to not think you're good enough. And if you don't think you're good enough, then you're going to criticize your body. It's like a loop. Mm-hmm. How do we stop that loop? If I recognise that my mental health is massively affected because I'm so worried about my performance in the bedroom and I'm sitting here thinking, I know my partner doesn't love me as much anymore compared to the beginning, they were a lot more this. I don't think they're attracted to me and I don't feel confident about myself. What do we do in that moment?
1: Well, one of the things we've got to do is we've got to check it out with the other person. And this is not just for people in relationships. Also, people who are single are going through this stuff themselves because sex is so much you know um our relationship with sex is largely about ourselves as well and i think we always think of it as this exclusively partnered experience but one of the things we can do is check it out with our partners and the other thing is again equipping ourselves or trying to find some resources trying to work out what's going on a lot of the stuff is often deep rooted as well Mm. and it's it might kind of go back to previous experiences but we have to be able to kind of go there and explore it ourselves And most of us would rather just avoid. And avoidance, we know, is such a natural way of dealing with anxiety. So if we avoid it, we just kind of pretend that everything's fine. And then we try and have a sexual experience again or try and approach our partner again or they approach us. And it's likely that we're going to struggle because we haven't worked out what's going on. I think
0: especially in the modern dating world, you know, you just touched upon the fact that we shouldn't just talk about relationships. We should talk about people who are single Mm. and perhaps on dating apps and swiping and meeting people for the first time and maybe having a repetitive pattern of bad sex or no sex or feeling like they're very scared to bring up the conversation, especially if you're meeting somebody for the first time. What have you found is so different in the modern dating world and why millennials struggling so much?
1: think so many people feel that sense of rejection and mm-hmm. that's really you know we have such a kind of human sensitivity to rejection of course yeah. we do and putting ourselves out there time and time again things like ghosting are really common and really really damaging you know it might be easier for that person to just not reply to disappear but you wouldn't act like that face to face with someone but it leaves the person on the receiving end with so many questions and again because of that that kind of natural self-critical nature that we have we're going to assume that it's about us we don't know that that person's actually done that to 20 people in the last six months because we only see our context our version and it's those kind of things we have to remind remind ourselves are always about them you know that person isn't taking responsibility or isn't just sending a message that says, do you know what, I had a great time, but I don't think this is going to go anywhere. I'm wishing you like, the best of luck with everything. We can't, there's a responsibility. And I think the only thing that we can do in those instances is reassure, reassure ourselves, spend time with the people we do love and who, you know, love us for who we are. Because relationships and love are not just about partners, but they're also about friends, about family, about people we're close to.
0: So true. I want to do a bit of a role play with you. I don't know if you do this with your clients. Let's say I am struggling in the bedroom with my partner and I want to approach a conversation with somebody. I want to approach the conversation and tell them that they're terrible. And they come to you and I say, Kate, my partner is terrible. They don't listen to me. It's boring. I don't know. They list a bunch of reasons. I've tried to communicate with them nicely. I sent them your last podcast where we talked around exploration and They're just not getting it. What do I say?
1: You've got to make it fun. You've got to say, let's do this together. Let's try something together. And also, what if they say no? Terrible is a really interesting thing because that's, again, subjective. And I'd want to know, you've got to balance it out. And say to them, okay, look, let's try something new together. What would you like to try? I'm interested in trying this. How do you feel about that? And a partner being receptive to those conversations is a big part of this. You can't do this on your own. Fine. And if it's not working, what we know is that desire is going to responsibly decrease. No one is motivated to do things that don't feel good for them, that they don't enjoy. And in terms of kind of shifting your whole sexual relationship... It's obviously not working on its own. You've got to do something differently. I'd be interested to know if they also think it's terrible.
0: So what if they come around and say, well, look, I know I know you wanted to try this thing, but I don't want to try it. I don't want to make it fun. Okay. Why don't you want to try it? Well, it's just something that, you know, I like our sex. I think it's great.
1: Okay. But it's not really working as well as it could be for me at the moment. So what can we do, which is about us doing this together, So we're always focusing on the we, the us, because if we Mm -hmm. attack our partners, they're going to act defensively or kind of attack back. If they feel they've been criticised. Fine. So we have to go in with positives and reinforcing that idea that this is something for us and that sex is fun. And what
0: if they turn around and say, look, Kate, let's just say you're the person in the relationship now. (laughs) They say, look, I know that you want us to change. I quite I don't want us to change. I quite like our, the way sex is. So what would someone do if they feel like nothing is working? Is it important for them to stay in a relationship that perhaps doesn't have the best sex life? Because you can be with somebody and love everything about them, mm. but you're just not compatible in this one area. Mm. And you've just said desire kind of goes away. is that applicable if it's something you're really strong about, let's say, for example?
1: I think that lots of couples get stuck into this situation and the reality is it's about how important it is for the people in that relationship, but also Mm -hmm. that willingness to change it is in itself quite a big statement in a relationship. You know, if something else wasn't working, how would we approach it? If our schedules weren't working, how would we approach it? If decisions we wanted to make together weren't working? And also there's something about the... How do we tackle this together? Is it not necessarily being a bad thing, but something we want to shift? And what is it that you're so scared of if we change it? I'd want to know what the defensiveness is behind it.
0: How interesting. When I was listening to another podcast on this, someone said, well, me and my partner are not aligned in our sexual values. We seek that elsewhere. Are you seeing more open relationships?
1: Yeah, I think they're definitely... Open relationships have always been around, but we're definitely seeing a shift in conversation Mm -hmm. around it, for sure. And, you know, the important point to be made here is open relationships, because they come under the title ethical or consensual non-monogamy, where all parties involved are informed about what's going on, which is why when people like to say this is just cheating, it's not, they are very different things.
0: Why are they so different?
1: Because of the consent, because everyone involved has agreed... There are rules, there are plans. And typically we see that communication for people in non-monogamous relationships has to be good, has to be clear right. for it to work or where it's working. And the the consensual and ethical bit is critical to it working. But I think so often people confuse that with a different model. And these are about models of relationships of which there are so many. But the most common one we see is a couple.
0: Yes, And do you think that monogamous relationships work?
1: I think that they can. Do you think think it's natural to us? I do not know the answer to that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think that we, I think that they can work. I think that for lots of people they don't. And we see that the divorce rates are really high. And we see that also the way that people, you know, attitudes towards that are changing. Yeah. So divorce is not the taboo that it always was no and so I think how we how we approach relationships again is important for us to know with our partners before we go down whatever route we're gonna go down and And obviously things change for some people
0: I was just gonna say that things change Mm. but also I think there's a misconception that if you're in an open relationship you don't love your partner because if you if you loved your partner uh, you would only love them Do you
1: feel that? Do you see that a lot? I think it's a big misconception. And I think that actually, for some people in those kind of relationships, it creates a change in how they love or it can create more love but you know trust is a really important part of that Mm. but Esther Perel always talks about how we expect from one person what a village used to give us and so much of the time and a lot of relationships experts talk about this we expect so much from our partners them to be our lovers our confident, the most close person to us a co-parent a you know um, a, a housemate that we we put everything on them and actually why can't we get different things from different relationships with other people just in terms of our friends mm. you know our family and we expect so much that almost our partners are guaranteed to fail us at some point purely for that reason what's the biggest expectation you see in relationships that's breaking them i think probably what we just talked about that our partners should be everything and there's also something in that which is interesting which is If our partner has to be everything for us, what does that mean about us before we were partnered? Or what does that mean if we're single? Because there's something about saying there that, okay, well, if I'm single, then I'm not enough. And there are plenty of very happy single people who don't feel that way.
0: Oh, that's another topic in itself people think it's wild if you're encouraging people to be single because you need somebody to complete you. with the modern day feminists who are breaking every relationship up is what I've been told sometimes. Because what I always encourage people to do is be happy within yourself and then your partner is an addition. So when they go away... When they travel, when you break up, when you are perhaps, they can't give you 100%, when perhaps they're struggling through something, your whole world is not torn apart. But somehow that's translated into you don't need your partner, and therefore you shouldn't rely on them. I don't think that's the case. I think it's about not putting everything onto them, because there's going to be times, because they're human too, where they can't give you 100%. And we see so much of that expectation in all of our relationships and I do think that's one of the reasons why relationships are breaking but from your clients and from what people are telling you what's the biggest thing people are struggling with
1: I think that you mean in terms of relationships yeah what do you mean in terms of sex I think in right. terms of relationships it's how do you know how do we have the best relationship with everything else you know mm. I think we're in this really really kind of highly productive no rest you know all work no play on 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 and then it has to look great on social media yeah and I think that there's so much that doesn't we don't have the the space or the allowance for it to be just okay you know sometimes relationships can be just okay for a while and that's fine they don't have to be amazing all the time we've got so obsessed with productivity that I think some of that's leaked into our relationships and Particularly, you know, these expectations that we have to look a certain way, and that how we present ourselves to the outside world or on social media, we don't we don't think about how critical or how much pressure a lot of that puts on. Mm. And I think there's a there's a big part of that, which is that how do we also divide ourselves in all of these ways, and still have time for our relationship, and sometimes relationships. Are mundane and are boring, and we do just kind of get into our routines. that's not necessarily a real problem, but within that we want the moments of connection we want to kind of know that we're there for each other to feel close and we can do that, and every couple will do that in their own way but I think it's it's that we suddenly think there's a problem if it's not kind of all bright and shiny and amazing all the time we think oh okay well we should probably we should probably change this for something new and exciting well there's that saying that the grass is always green on the other side mm-hmm. and unfortunately
0: we only see the green grass on social media because nobody is going to post on their relationship i hate my partner today he's pissed me off or she's irritating me or she's doing this this and this they're mm-hmm. just not going to do it they are going to post when it's their birthday and say you're the best person that happened to me they are going to post three thousand pictures pictures when they're married saying this was the best day of my life my entire life but we don't see that and so naturally even there's been times when I've thought like wow why is everyone so happy all the time (laughs) honestly sometimes I just sit there thinking like what am I doing wrong because I feel like I'm happy sometimes but I'm also really struggling sometimes and you know I I shared a story yesterday and it was so nice to see so many people say like thank you for being so vulnerable because when I look at your life sometimes I do think everything is great and I'm like please don't think that way It's really, really not sometimes. And that's not me complaining. That's me just showing the reality of like, it's very normal to have a good day, a bad day, a good hour, a bad hour. But it's very unusual to see that in relationships because we don't want to be open about our relationship struggles. And one thing you touched on earlier was around making effort. Do you think it's important to make effort in our relationships in the way that we look and the way that we feel? Because there is an expectation of like, my hair must be nice. I must wear nice clothes. I must be in good shape. I must uh, have makeup on every day. I must have my toenails painted and not have, you know, not have an ugly manicure. I mean, (laughs) nails are the way forward, guys. But there is that expectation because we want to look nice for our partner because we believe that looking nice is going to fuel the excitement and the niceness and the honeymoon period will continue but it's unrealistic you just said you're a mother of two how do people do it?
1: I think that so much of that is about how we feel in ourselves and doing it for ourselves and trying to make us feel good because the minute we are struggling with whatever's going on for us we're going to assume that our partner also thinks that and I think that's where cracks can appear And actually that we should be doing those things for us. The minute we do them for someone else and that person doesn't give us the response we want, we're going to find that really difficult. And this is about our mental health, our physical health, our well-being, our sexual well-being, whatever that is. It's about working on making ourselves happy. You said it earlier, kind of make yourself happy and then a relationship will be in addition to that. Now also it's something that couples can do together if they're both struggling or they're in a rut okay how do we change this for us to make us both feel better and we do get stuck in ruts of course we do of course yeah and it's so normal and I think again it's about how we do that in a way which means that we don't just self-criticize but something you said earlier that good days bad days average days that's something I say to people about sex lives all the time I'm like what makes you think that your sex life has to be great every day you know every time everything has variability good days bad days average days but what is it that we're clinging on to about this idea that sex has to be perfect every time incredible every time because that does set us up to fail and a bit like the curated reality version of life that we're talking about in relationships that we have to look perfect every time be perfect every time our relationship has to you know look be perfect every day it it's why so many of us i think struggle you know we're failing our expectations all the time oh my god that is so true just how
0: you have some days that are the best days of your life you will have some moments in your relationship that are the best moments of your relationship and just how you have some days you're like yeah it's kind of fine the majority of your relationship will probably be like yeah it's good like it's fine and then you'll have some days you're like everything is hell And there's going to be moments in your relationship where it's the same. And you're you're so right. That correlation. We don't think about that. In fact, what we think about is the more I'm with you, the better everything should be. The more stable we should be. The better communication we should have. The more we should understand each other. The more I should be able to read your brain. Because I just know you. And I just get it. And I'm sick of us romanticizing this
1: idea. If you loved me, you would know. This. (laughs) No, I don't bloody know. I'm not a mind reader. It's It's, so fascinating. It's so common in couples. It's one of the most common couple behaviours we see is mind reading. You don't even have to tell me your answer. I already know it. And that's where we trip up and we trip up all the time. And that's where we get stuck in our assumptions. And that's where the communication, the clarifying bit really comes from. Because however much we love someone, we still can't know what's going on in their head. So true. And I think that the, the normality of all of this stuff is also part of the glue of relationships you know also when we go through some of the hardest times some of the worst times it might be horrific for us but we actually might feel that we come out the other side stronger better because we got through it together Mm -hmm. others might go through loads of challenges go kind of distance and come back together and be like okay we can do this now but I needed a bit of distance from you or because trust got broken or there's um a book called attached and in that they talk about the dependence paradox which is the idea that actually the more attached kind of securely we are the more easier it is for us to be independent because we have that that base that we can come back to whereas we tend to think that this model of the best relationships is that they're always together always close that distance isn't helpful whereas lots of relationships can move kind of like this and we talk about something in relationship therapy called the dance of intimacy, which is that we can go through these different stages of separateness, kind of togetherness, and we can kind of move through them like the steps of a dance and be comfortable in those different spaces. And whether that's, you know, emotionally, physically that we're, you know, living in different countries that we can kind of move through those different stages and accept that relationships might have this more, more fluid, structure but within the, the boundaries and the rules we've set for our relationships that
0: it really links into what you said earlier about knowing what's right for your relationship because i think often we have a rule book that people should play by yep and i've said this before i was born on this planet with different dna to every single person so why is it that I have to live my life according to the narrative and the blueprint that has been displayed by everyone before me and everyone who lives in society why can't I choose my own path if I was meant to be the same and if we as the world every single woman was meant to be the same and every single man was meant to be the same and every single gender was meant to be the same why were we given this choice right Mm -hmm. Why is my DNA so different? It would be a slight difference. It's very different from every single person. I don't know what the stat is, but it's like a one in a trillion chance that I would have been born instead of somebody else with the DNA mixing between my parents. So this idea and this narrative that we should all fit into this mold and we should all conform to societal expectations is rubbish. And what you've just said around the fluidity part, I used to have this impression that if you spend a lot of time away from your partner, it's a bad thing. Right. And I'm mm-hmm. going to be totally transparent about that. I would see that as my, my love language is a lot around presence, not gifts, by the way, <laughs> presence. And if somebody chooses to spend time with me, I see that as an act of love. Mm-hmm. And the reason I see that as an act of love is my parents spend so much time together mm-hmm. and they always have. And I've re- recognized that what you're shown in life is obviously your reality. So when I've seen people who are like, oh, yeah, I see my partner twice a year. I'm like, huh? How does that work? That's weird. Or I only see my partner once a week for dinner. I'm like, what is the point in being married? I just don't understand it. I still to this day, by the way, don't understand it. <laughs> when Like someone I met the other day was like, we only, we only have dinner once a week and we only see each other once a week. I was like, how weird is that? I was like, why don't you just... I don't know I was just I didn't I obviously didn't say that I was like oh, okay interesting but in my head I was very much like I wouldn't be able to do that because for me that doesn't define love mm. but for someone else it does and we've got to stop putting our own definitions on other people mm. and we've got to stop using other people's definitions on ourselves
1: it's it there's a there's a link here to also something that you know I've wrote about and is in the book a lot which is about know your normal and we usually use that in terms of kind of knowing your body for health reasons so particularly things like you know we were talking about cancer earlier you know like cancer scares knowing your body knowing when something changes because your normal might not be someone else's but I think it's something we can apply here absolutely to relationships and there's you've got a blueprint which is couples in love marriages spend lots of time together. That's the blueprint you grew up with, the version you grew up with. And whilst you can change your blueprint, kind of consciously thinking about it at any point, it might not marry up with other peoples, but other people might see that freedom and flexibility and traveling a lot and being able to trust Mm. our partners in those scenarios is their version of normal or what works for them. Because Mm. being in a relationship with a lot of distance actually means that when they come back together, it's more intense, that they feel really close to each other, that they feel really connected and that they have a model which kind of goes more like this. And I think the the thing is there's no right or wrong providing it's working for the people who are in it. but we have these kind of pretty solid versions of what we think the right model looks like and we often describe the relationship escalator. So you date for a while, you move in together, you get engaged, you get married, you have kids, you buy a house together, grow old, et cetera. And often we think we kind of get on at the bottom step and it up it goes and we're kind of carried through. Whereas we know, you know, I've got loads of people close to me, you know, as a perfect example, that have not gone up the escalator but do things differently. But somehow, unconsciously for lots of people, the escalator kind of still exists. Yeah. And it's about working out whether that is the right version for us but also thinking about it at every stage you know a big thing about the relationship escalator is often it's quite unconscious or it's assumed Mm. and actually we can work out at every stage what we're going to do what we want it to look like do we never want to own a house Do we want to travel the world do we want to have kids but never get married do we want to you know be together but invite other partners there's so many different ways that we can do it but I think so many of us kind of do it the way that we think we should. And actually sometimes that can be problematic and actually doing it a different way that works for us or in our our version of normal is a way of feeling really comfortable and satisfied.
0: So much to unlearn and so much to unpack because mm. like you said, some of these comparisons are very unconscious and we have no idea how so many different moments in our life have affected us until we discover what we want and hopefully this podcast is a good way for people to understand that themselves but hopefully also open up that conversation with their partner so thank you so much for coming